Good afternoon. In this podcast, I would like to talk about a very recent case handed down by the European Court of Justice on the 11th of March of 2020. That's Baltic Cable, and it's referred to by the number C slash 454 stripe 18. And it's an important case uh, for the energy sector, as I will try and explain in this podcast. I will first of all explain the background to the case, what was at stake. I'll then look at some of the more interesting aspects of the case for energy law in general. And then finally, I'll turn to some of the implications of the ruling um, for other EU interconnectors, in particular, given that uh, we have the new regulation recently adopted under the Clean Energy Package. So to give a very short introduction of what's at stake here, um, it's a rather complicated case for those perhaps not so familiar uh, with the ins and outs of European electricity regulation. But the key point is that it concerned um, restrictions on transmission system operators to use congestion revenue generated on electricity interconnectors. And uh, one of the issues here was that the rules that are set out in the regulation of 2009 reflect the situation of what you could call a normal TSO with an extensive transmission network, but were not well suited to single interconnection companies um, such as Baltic Cable. So this was really one of the, the basic issues here, how to fit uh, this rather one-size-fits-all approach into the specific situation of a single interconnector company. And this was the problem that the Swedish energy regulator, uh, abbreviated here to EI, faced. Um, the regulator was concerned that it had no choice but to apply the rules in the regulation, um, even if the outcome of the application of those rules uh, seemed to be disproportionate because, in fact, Baltic Cable could not generate any profits if the legislation was applied literally. So that, in a nutshell, um, is what the dispute was about. Um, the uh, energy regulator in Sweden um, refused then uh, to allow uh, Baltic Cable access to its revenues uh, they were put on an internal escrow account. Uh, they weren't allowed to be used. And Baltic Cable appealed uh, the decision of the regulator to the Swedish uh, administrative courts. And those courts, in turn, referred certain questions to the European Court of Justice by way of the preliminary reference procedure. So let's take a little bit of a step back and look at the regulation 714 of 2009 and article 16 paragraph 6 um, which at the time regulated the use of congestion revenues um, that are obtained <coughs> excuse me, by allocating interconnector capacity to the market. So basically interconnectors can be classified into two types. Um, interconnectors that are owned by a TSO as part of a larger transmission system network, so regular TSOs um, owning 
an interconnector. Um, and in this case, the costs of those interconnectors are passed on to network users, normal um, users paying tariffs. Whereas we have interconnectors um, such as Baltic Cable, which are in fact single use or single interconnector companies. They have no network users, they just connect to different systems. This means that for these single inter interconnector companies, they have one source of revenue only, and that is congestion revenue. Congestion revenue is determined from the market coupling procedure by which the capacity of the cable is made av available to market participants. Now, the problem, as I mentioned, is that Article 16.6 doesn't seem to take the position of this type of company into account. And this was the problem for the Swedish regulator. So could it really and legitimately require Baltic Cable to keep all the income generated uh, by way of congestion revenue into this special account, um, an escrow account where it couldn't touch it? and put it into bankruptcy? Or could it interpret the regulation in such a way that it would allow Baltic Cable to use some of its revenue to make a reasonable return with a profit? And this is an important ruling because the court, in fact, recognises that a strict one-size-fits-all interpretation and application of the regulation would lead to discrimination discrimination against single interconnector companies. And if these types of companies could not earn a reasonable profit, this would put not only their own financial situation into jeopardy, but also the EU targets for better interconnection between the member states. So this was an outcome that was not necessarily a very favourable one, whether for Baltic Cable, in particular, or for EU electricity policy in general. So what is Baltic Cable and why is it rather special? Now, as I mentioned, it's a single interconnector company. Um, it was built in 1994 and it's owned uh, currently uh, by Stadkraft, um, which is a Norwegian electricity producer. Um, we have other types of interconnectors, of course, in the EU. Um, some of them are owned by TSOs, uh, whereas others are um, single interconnected companies, such as uh, Britnet, um, which is um, a single company, uh, and the, the Nemolink, um, also another single interconnector company. And then we have interconnectors owned by TSOs and operated as part of um, their network, like Svepol, Nordnet, the Skagerrak cables. Um, those are all good examples of what one could call regular interconnectors. So going back to Baltic Cable, as I mentioned, it's a 100% um, subsidiary of a Norwegian state company, Statkraft, and um, the cable is uh, 250 kilometre long um, HVDC subsea power line. So it's a high voltage direct current um, power line, which connects um, the Swedish system operated by Svenska Kraftnet uh, with the northwest of Germany to the system operated by 
Tenet um, in Germany. Um, so the sole operation of Baltic Cable then was to exchange uh, by way of market coupling uh, power between these two systems. And sole source of income, again, to stress the, the point, um, is then uh, generated through congestion revenue. In other words, uh, unlike a normal TSO, Baltic Cable does not have any directly connected network users. So it can't charge tariffs to these users. That means um, it couldn't pass on any costs or any risks uh, of non-use to network users. So that is a very different situation from that of a regular TSO. Now, the regulation that's applied at the time, so the 2009 regulation, in its article 16, paragraph 6, set out um, a number of options as to how congestion revenue should be used. So the options are, first of all, um, in section A or subsection A, <clears throat> the revenue resulting from the allocation of the interconnector could be used for either little a, guaranteeing the actual availability of the capacity, or b, maintaining or increasing interconnection capacity through investments, uh, particularly in new interconnectors. Now, in the alternative, uh, that um, article provides that if the revenues cannot be efficiently used for the purposes set out in A or B, um, they could be used subject to the approval of the national regulatory authorities um, up to a maximum amount to be decided by those authorities as income to be taken into account when approving network tariffs or fixing tariffs. So in other words, the regulatory authorities could um, look at the amount of income generated and accordingly use that income or allow the uh, TSO to use the income to reduce network tariffs. The rest of the revenue, um, if it was not used as required under A and B, um, so the first points of Article 16.6, either guaranteeing the availability of the capacity or increasing um, capacity through new investment, had to stay on a separate internal account, that's the escrow account, until such time as it could be used um, for the purposes spelled out in little a or little b. So either to guarantee the actual capacity, um, or the availability of the actual capacity, or alternatively, um, for new investment. So for a regular TSO, this wasn't really much of a problem because a regular TSO um, would be encouraged not to dimension uh, an interconnector in such a way that it would create scarcity rents. So if it did enjoy congestion revenue, this would be deemed to be a sort of windfall profit. Um, and because the TSO had already charged its own network users um, for um, the interconnector, it shouldn't enjoy windfall profits. And therefore, um, Article 16, Paragraph 6, requires a TSO in that situation, either 
um, to carry out um, the um, options A, so uh, guaranteeing the actual availability of the, uh, the capacity, or B, reinvesting it in new um, interconnector capacity, that all made quite a lot of sense. And of course, in the alternative, the regulator could um, allow the TSO to apply these revenues to reduce tariffs to network users. But for um, a single interconnect, interconnector company, none of these options prove to be either relevant um, or particularly attractive, as it's unlikely that a single inter, interconnector company would want to expand its network. And of course, if it has known network users, then it's rather difficult to imagine um, that it can reduce its tariffs for those users. Now, you might think it's a strange system uh, altogether because um, who is actually going to pay uh, for um, the use of these network, uh, these interconnectors, um, when a single interconnector company or a TSO actually um, builds them? Um, now, we've seen that for the regular TSOs, uh, the, uh, norm, the normal situation is that those costs will be rolled into network charges. And if those interconnectors are used uh, for other purposes, and especially, of course, for electricity, um, these interconnectors host um, unintended flows of electricity, then there is a mechanism, uh, the inter-transmission system operator compensation mechanism, so the ITC mechanism, which is provided for um, in the regulation and which um, shares the, um, the compensation in that fund uh, between the TSOs. So the regulation then, uh, seven, the regulation 714, um, in, in socializes the costs and the income um, of uh, these interconnectors for regular TSOs. But it's very difficult, as I've stressed, to fit the single interconnector company into that model because they do not have um, network users and they do not normally participate in the RTC fund. So this was the dilemma for the uh, Swedish regulator. Um, it recognised um, that um, it couldn't apply uh, either option A or option B in Article 16.6 to Baltic Cable, uh, but it had difficulty in applying the alternative test, which was um, to allow uh, BC, uh, BC, so to allow Baltic Cable to use its revenues as revenues um, to allow it to generate um, a rate of return. In other words, the Swedish regulator did not want to apply Article 16 contra legem. It didn't want to break the law, uh, fearing that the Commission might start infringement proceedings against Sweden. So it was really um, placed in a dilemma. Baltic Cable challenged the 
decisions um, in the Swedish Administrative Court, as I mentioned, and that court sent six questions um, to the European Court of Justice. Now, the first of those questions related to the interpretation um, of the article defining an entity as a TSO and asked if Baltic Cable was indeed a TSO because there was some dispute um, as to the interpretation of the directive and the regulation. And one solution could have been that if BC was not the TSO, then Article 16 would not apply to it, as Article 16 seemed only to apply to TSOs. However, um, the Swedish Administrative Court was not really convinced that that was um, a good argument, and it added several other questions. Um, It asked the court whether the costs relating to the operation and maintenance of an interconnector could be regarded as network investments. So that would allow um, BC um, to retain some of its revenue under Article 16.6b. Or could it um, allow um, the NRAs to approve uh, that revenues could be allocated um, in some other way to allow an interconnector to make a return? And uh, finally, the court asked, if that was not the case, um, would this mean that Article 16.6 of the regulation would actually be contrary to a higher principle of European law, that is, the the principle of proportionality? In other words, was Article 16, paragraph 6, actually illegal? Now, the court had no real difficulty in finding that a definition of a TSO, of a transmission system operator, also applied to single interconnector companies. So Baltic Cable was a TSO and was subject to Article 66. Um, And it's useful to recall here that actually uh, that discussion had already been uh, the subject of litigation in Germany and Baltic Cable has quite recently been certified Um, as a TSO, um, as an ITO in Germany at the end of 2019. So, why is this case um, an interesting case? Let's just um, look at the questions again and remember what is being asked here uh, by the Swedish court is whether or not the Swedish regulator should be able to interpret Article 16.6 in effect contra legge. So can the Swedish regulator ignore the wording of the regulation? Now, the case attracted quite a lot of attention because you'll see, um, especially if you read the Advocate General's opinion, Um, that um, a number of parties intervened um, to express their own um, opinions and to uh, request the court to make um, a certain finding. The Commission, the Council and the European Parliament all intervened, as well as two member states, Finland and Spain. All of these parties uh, contested 
the argument that the regulation uh, didn't apply to single interconnectors. Um, but what was particularly interesting is that although they all took slightly different views um, on the other questions sent by the Swedish court, the Commission took a very strict view of the application of Article 16.6. And in its view, uh, there was no room for any interpretation. So there was no way that the rules could be made more flexible to accommodate single interconnection companies. Um, <clears throat> now, the AG, Africa General, um, handed down his opinion in November last year. Um, he um, found that there was scope for interpretation and um, found that Article 16.6 uh, could be interpreted by the regulatory authority um, to allow a company such as BC to make a reasonable profit. So he did not think that it was necessary for um, the regulator to apply it contra legem. He thought that um, the points A and B could be interpreted um, as allowing an interconnector in the position of um, Baltic Cable to actually um, make a sufficient profit. The court picked up the case quite quickly um, in March, so that wasn't much of a, a lapse of time um, after uh, the Advocate General had handed down his opinion. And what's quite interesting is this is a judgment of, of the third chamber of the court, um, but um, there is one um, additional member, and that is the president of the Court of Justice, Judge Lenartz. He is sitting with the chamber, um, and that is usually an indication the court itself considers the judgment uh, to be important. Um, and what we see in the ruling is um, that the court actually uh, nearly interprets Article 16.6 contra legem, but um, manages um, to do so um, to avoid a violation of the principle of non-discrimination. In other words, it applies Article 16.6 in such a way that the position of a single interconnector company <clears throat> is no different from that of a TSO, and both should be allowed to make uh, a profit. So, what did the court uh, find? Well, it confirmed that uh, Baltic Cable had to be treated as a TSO, but <clears throat> it also ruled that a national regulatory authority must apply Article 16.6 in a manner that would put a company such as Baltic Cable in a position in which it's able to carry out its activity in a financially acceptable way corresponding to the conditions of the electricity market, which includes making an appropriate profit. You can find that statement at paragraph 78. So the court then answered uh, the question sent to it uh, by the Swedish Administrative Court, confirming that uh, Article 16.6 of the regulation must be interpreted in a way that the NRA can apply that provision to a TSO that merely operates a cross-border interconnector um, and to authorise that TSO to use part of its congestion revenue to make a return uh, 
as well as for the operation and the maintenance of uh, that interconnector. Why? Because this is necessary to prevent it being discriminated against by comparison with other TSOs. And it would ensure that the company um, would be um, able to carry out its activity under financially acceptable conditions. So that statement um, is um, to be found at paragraph 79. So the court is not saying that the regulator is entitled to interpret and apply Article 16.6 contra legem, but it comes rather close to that because the Commission um, that had wanted to suggest that uh, the application of the regulation had to be strict, um, and if that had been the only way out and the court had disagreed with the Commission, then it would have had to instruct the regulator uh, to effectively break the law. But what the court did was um, to apply an important um, interpretation to avoid discrimination. So, in effect, it said that um, a single interconnector company had to be treated in as fair a way as a TSO, a regular TSO, operating uh, an extensive network. Uh, and it also recognised that um, new interconnectors could have been treated more flexibly. So um, Article 17 of the regulation at the time allowed for new interconnectors, merchant interconnectors, to apply for a derogation. So by stressing uh, that um, the article could be applied, had to be applied in a way as to avoid discrimination, uh, the court avoided instructing the Swedish regulator to apply that article contra legem. So why then is this case of interest? Um, it seems perhaps at first sight uh, to be um, a case that concerns um, an interconnector that couldn't have qualified for an exemption because it was built in 1994 and therefore it didn't qualify as new infrastructure. Under the regulation, it couldn't um, have qualified for an exemption. Um, there are perhaps not that many um, existing cables that couldn't have benefited from an exemption. But if we look around, there are quite a few compromise solutions where new interconnectors are still part of regulated regimes. Now, I mentioned the, the NEMO link between Great Britain and, and Belgium. This is a, also a single interconnector, but it's regulated uh, by um, uh, the CREG in Belgium and Ofgem in Great Britain as a regulated link. And it's subject to a so-called cap and floor regime, which has been designed by the regulators um, to allow the companies um, operating the NEMO link um, to finance the costs um, and at the same time to, to make a reasonable profit. So we see then that there are many different types of interconnectors um, and different models around um, in the EU. Um, it's very difficult to squeeze every single interconnector into a one size fits all uh, type approach. Um, there are 
different solutions for different types of interconnectors at the moment. Some are regulated, some are merchant, some are part of a network, some are single-purpose uh, companies, uh, and in fact, they all have rather different revenue models. So this, this ruling is important because it suggests that regulators are able to accommodate um, different solutions uh, within what looks at first sight uh, like the rather strict wording of Article 16 of the regulation. In the meantime, of course, Article 16.6, uh, like the rest of Regulation 714, has been repealed and recast. Uh, we have the new regulation, uh, number 943 um, of 2019, uh, which is part of the, the Clean Energy Package. And it has, in turn, actually repealed the um, provisions of the old Article 16. And it has introduced um, uh, perhaps a more flexible approach when it comes to dealing with uh, congestion revenue and how it should be managed. Uh, in particular, um, it allows ACER, the, the Agency for the Cooperation of Energy Regulators, to provide guidance on a proper application um, of these regulations um, on the use of congestion revenue. So we understand that ACER is currently busy with preparing guidance, uh, developing uh, a methodology uh, that will guide uh, um, national regulators as to how congestion revenue um, should be applied um, and on the conditions on, um, under which national regulatory authorities um, should approve the use of congestion revenue. In the meantime, and um, before that methodology is finalised and applied, we have a very important signal from the European Court of Justice uh, that that methodology should not result in any discriminatory outcomes. So I hope that um, this, this podcast, which is a bit technical, I have to say, um, has introduced you to some of uh, the ways of uh, electricity regulation um, and particularly uh, the vexed subject of congestion revenue. I hope to have explained uh, the framework of the court's ruling and to have given you a bit of an indication of where Article 19 of the new regulation uh, might take us when it comes to devising a new, uh, fairer methodology, a more flexible methodology for the allocation of congestion revenue across the very different types of interconnectors that we have operating in the European electricity market. Thank you very much for your attention and I hope that you all keep safe and well um, in these difficult times where often many of us are working from home and I hope that um, this podcast will provide uh, maybe not light relief but at least a bit of distraction. Thank you very much.